Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So many indigenous cultures have their own variation of a creation story. For example, in this creation story, it centers around a character which her name is Ayetan Sik, also known as Sky Woman. Sky Woman is the English version of her name. Imagine this woman, she's falling through the clouds and in the sky. So you have to kind of imagine that she's plummeting towards Waterworld is the best way I could describe it. So as she gets closer to the water's edge, the animals that saw her coming were like, wow, we need to do something to help her. So when she lands, they let her stand on the back of a turtle. And they said, well, she needs more space to live. So the story goes that many animals dove down to the seabed and many of them did not survive because of how long it was. And the one who finally did was the beaver because of the sacrifices in the community of these animals trying to do something to help save this woman's life. The magic of the earth began to grow on the back of the turtle. And that is what we know of as North America. At the time of first contact in the early 17th century, the Wendat Confederacy of Nations was based at Wendake in Quebec, Canada. Today, the Wendat Nation stretches to the U.S. states of Oklahoma, Michigan, and Kansas. Traditional Huron-Wendat music centers around the drum, which is meant to represent the heartbeat, and the voice, which is meant to represent the soul. First contact is the term anthropologists use to describe initial encounter between cultures. It's a perspective of mutual discovery, in this case, between indigenous and European nations. It was referred to as New France, but of course there were indigenous peoples uh, for millennia before who were here. Mutual discovery was not, however, the way Europeans envisioned these meetings. You can't discover something that already has been found or discover something that already is, you know? So there's nothing to discover. This New France was a colonial project driven principally by a lust for land, resources, wealth, and power. And the Catholic Church had a large role to play in this. During the so-called Age of Discovery, the Church incentivized European expansion into the rest of the world. There was also a second line in the mind of the king of ensuring a religious presence. The first religious order to arrive on Turtle Island was the Society of Jesus, known to us now as the Jesuits. They arrived in 1611 at Port Royal, which today is Nova Scotia, a province on the east coast of Canada. And Jesuits were known to go into this place and to not be known by anyone and to not have any sense of the language and to face drastic weather and a way of life that was very different. 
Among the earlier missionaries was Jean de Brebeuf, a French Jesuit who at only 23 years of age had committed himself to a vowed life of service. He was assigned to the mission in New France, where he ministered to the Huron-Wendat tribe from 1626 to his martyrdom in 1649 at the hands of the Iroquois nation. In the time Brebeuf lived with the Wendat tribe, he studied their culture, language, and spirituality. And out of this deep immersion, he wrote a Christmas song. Essentially what he did with this carol is he was rewriting the story of Jesus using words from our creation story. He set the words to an old French tune, Un jeune pousselle, which means a young maiden. It was a piece of music or an experience that survived that earlier time and was somehow incorporated into indigenous Christian life. And from this, Canada's first Christmas carol was born. Welcome to Hark a podcast about the meaning and the making of our favorite Christmas carols. I'm your host, Maggie Van Dorn. And over the four weeks of Advent, we're unwrapping one song at a time. We look at the musical development of these jingles, along with the religious and cultural messages baked into their lyrics. On this episode, we're listening to the Huron Carol, or what is sometimes called, Twas in the Moon of Wintertime. Here in the United States, it's not especially well-known. I've never heard of that. The Huron Carol? No, I've never heard of that. Is that British as well? Maybe if I were Canadian, I would have heard it more often. Huron Carol, I'm ashamed to say I have never heard of it. Couldn't hum it if you asked me to. Even when we asked Indigenous people in the United States, it wasn't familiar. I have not. I was just like, oh my gosh, what? Like, the Huron Carol? Like, I've heard of Hurons, but I haven't heard of the Huron Carol. But in Canada, it's a national treasure. This was a Christmas carol that we grew up with, just like the first Noel or Joy to the World. I mean, I remember it being in the hymnal in the pews in our church as a kid. It is very popular. I always refer to November as the Huron carol season because somebody always contacts me. And for Jesuits, the song holds a special meaning. The Huron carol for me has a kind of dark feel, but really powerful because it's Jean de Brebeuf trying to enculturate the Christmas message. It's been performed by some of Canada's biggest recording artists, from Sarah McLaughlin to Toronto Children's Chorus. And an Indigenous actor and singer, Tom Jackson, has named an entire Christmas benefit concert after the carol. Hi, I'm Tom Jackson. Join us for this year's Huron Carol Benefit Concert in aid of your local food bank. For decades now, the Huron Carol has toured across Canada to raise money for charity. For many... This is a deeply beloved Christmas song, but it's not without historical baggage. So please join me as we unwrap with great care the story behind the Huron Carol. 
where does someone like Breibach fit in? I don't think he does, but he does. This is Father Michael Knox. I'm a member of the Society of Jesus, currently serving as the director of Martyr Shrine in Midland, Ontario, and superior of the Jesuit community here. The Shrine remembers eight Jesuits who, by their commitment to radical Christian love and solidarity with the Wendat, became martyrs. One of those martyrs was St. Jean de Brebeuf. Jean de Brebeuf is one of the few Jesuit characters that is so bound to the earliest histories of Canada that one must mention his name or read his literature to do an authentic study of our earliest history here in what we now call Canada. Brebeuf was a Jesuit missionary. Uh, he was born in 1593 in uh, France and entered the Society of Jesus when he was 23 years old. Being a Jesuit in France at the time, one of the principal missions was that to what we can call for this conversation New France. And in the midst of that movement towards establishing what they refer to as New France, there was also a second line in the mind of the king of ensuring a religious presence. And particularly with the wars and conflicts with the Huguenots and other political situations in France and a rising presence of Protestantism, many saw New France as, namely that, a new opportunity. Hmm. So because there was this growing religious tension in France uh, between Protestants and Catholics, New France became an opportunity to reinforce the Catholic tradition there? Yes. And more than that, when you look at the writings of the early Jesuits, you can sense in their writings a belief, too, that it was a new opportunity for deeper service, perhaps deeper conversion. Brebeuf comes to Turtle Island in 1625. He's part of a band of Jesuits who have been inspired by both a renewed energy in French Catholicism and the spirituality of another Jesuit, Father Louis Lallemand. His impact on so many of them was so great. And for Lallemand, one of the principal elements of Jesuit spirituality was one of the third week experience. The founder of the Jesuits, St. Ignatius of Loyola, created the spiritual exercises. These are divided into what Ignatius calls four weeks. But really, these are not calendar weeks. They're four stages, during which those doing the exercises are invited to place themselves imaginatively into the Gospels and relive for themselves the life and ministry of Jesus. The third week that Father Knox mentions, that's when one is called to focus on Jesus's passion and death. And recognizing that the love that Jesus represents for us is a love that teaches us the importance of self-offering in that. If you've loved before, you know that there is something one has to give of oneself. And so the idea of suffering for the sake of love that's what Rebuff and his companions prayed with. And within that milieu, perhaps bind oneself all the more with Christ, the suffering Christ, at the service of the people they had come to serve, namely the indigenous peoples. This is something we come to see at the end of Rebuff's life, in his martyrdom. 
but it's also evident over the two decades of ministry to the Wendat people. And we learn about that ministry through what, in Jesuit speak, is known as the Relations. The Relations were an annual letter of enormous size that consisted of reflections from many of the missionaries brought together by the leader of the Jesuit mission, the superior, and sent to France, published and disseminated amongst thousands of people, translated into different languages and so on. So, in essence, this was kind of a yearly report from the faraway mission territories to Mission Central in France. And Brebeuf wrote two of those relations, or at least large portions of them, whilst he was in New France. And in that context, one gains a sense in studying his writings of his purpose in being in New France. And one of the key things that come up regularly is this sense that in being in that place, he is under threat of death. He is under constant misunderstanding from various peoples that he's journeying with. He is, in some cases, feared by others because of his very culture. And in the midst of all of that, choosing to journey, particularly with one indigenous group, placed him automatically at odds with others that might be in conflict with that group. A warning to our listeners. We're about to hear about the violent death suffered by Brebeuf and his Jesuit companion, Gabriel Lalmo. If you've got little ones or would rather not hear these details, please skip ahead about three minutes. Well, first thing I would say, very important, at least from my point of view, is to say what martyrdom was in this context. And my uh, understanding of martyrdom is to talk about martyrdom as a moment where someone embraces Christ in love that involves death. In the case of St. John de Brebeuf, he was journeying with a newly arrived Jesuit, Father Gabriel Lama, who was also canonized. And they were visiting a village called St. Louis, which was a Wendat village. And during that time of their visit, the village was attacked. Uh, the villagers fought back for multiple hours, and in the relations it suggests nobly so to hold back so many invaders. And during that time, it is suggested in the description of Brebeuf and Laomal's uh, martyrdom that they were given the opportunity to flee. But both chose to stay. The village was taken, prisoners were taken, and amongst them, Brebeuf and Laomal. In the traditions, and perhaps, I think, arguably, ritual of warfare uh, within the various various indigenous groups in this part of the country, um, the practice of taking prisoners and having some of them exposed to ritualized forms of torture was common for various reasons, political reasons, for spiritual reasons, all sorts of reasons. And Brebeuf and Lama were highlighted as the two principal characters to receive that tradition. And so they were stripped naked 
they were beaten and then marched from the village of St. Louis to another village about uh, maybe seven or eight kilometers away that had already been taken by the Iroquois completely, the village of St. Ignace II. And whilst there, they were both subjected to various forms of torture that were psychological and physical, whilst tied to the posts of their church. And then Brebeuf was tortured for about three hours, Laumal throughout the rest of the day, the night, and into the next day. Uh, typically, it would be the removing of elements of digits, uh, flailing skin, uh, the use of fire, and so on as part of the torture. But particularly in the case of these two priests, elements of Christianity were also infused by the torturers. So, for example, boiling water was poured over Brebeuf and Lama three times. You say we need baptism for salvation, we will make sure you're truly baptized before you die. For some, it's this story of Brebeuf's faith and courage to the point of death that is remembered most. But it's not his only legacy. He also wrote A Christmas Carol, which was passed along in the oral tradition for generations to follow. And for Father Michael Knox, this song, which has endured, tells us two very important things. For me, the first thing is that it was a piece of music that survived that earlier time and was somehow incorporated into Indigenous Christian life. The other thing it says to me is that there was a community who chose to have a relationship with Christ and they were living it out. Because if you think about it, a hymn is not a teaching tool for someone who is maybe possibly next year thinking about becoming a Christian. A hymn is an act of celebration, a praying twice, a naming, and most often within some kind of sacred space or ritual or experience. So to me, the song is saying that there were people amidst all of the circumstances and complexities of the time who had made a choice to enter into the Christian experience. Kwewetsi, Wendatandi, Geneviève Gros-Louis Salomon Yatsik. This is Geneviève Salomon. I'm a member of the Huron-Wendat Nation, and I am a professional violinist, composer, producer, and activist for critical Indigenous issues within our communities. And I guess maybe now is a good time to bring it up. We don't call ourselves Huron, so we actually call ourselves Wendat. The word Huron actually comes from the word like boar's bristle from our Mohawks that we would wear back in the time of initial contact. So it wasn't necessarily like a very flattering name um, for us. And also it wasn't what we called ourselves. So do you call this the Wendat Carol? 
Well, that's the question, isn't it? I mean, it's the name that was given to this song and this piece, but I also read that like the Wendat version of it is just how Ahaton Ia, which is Jesus He's Born in Wendat. So maybe that's more appropriate. Could you say again the Wendat name? Because I've seen it written, but I'm going to need some practice in pronouncing it for Jesus is Born. Oh, Jesus Aha. Jesus aha ton hia. Aha ton hia. Okay, I think I got it. Would you like to refer to the carol that way throughout the rest of the interview? We can call it the Huron Carol. It's I'm not like bothered by it. I just wanted to like provide that like insight. I think it's a lot easier to say Huron Carol than aha ton hia for sure. And for Geneviève, it's not just the name of the carol that's problematic. Essentially, what he did with this carol is he was rewriting the story of Jesus using words from our creation story or themes from our creation story. Small things like they were called chiefs from afar instead of the magi, or they're surrounded by hunters instead of shepherds, or I mean, just a lot of the little things like that. For some, this carol is an example of the best of Christian enculturation. But for Genevieve, its very existence points to the erasure of her people's culture. It's actually kind of offensive when you really think about it. Mm. Um, Just trying to twist our creation story into a funnel of Christianity. I I mean, I understand as someone who was trying to connect with our people. He was just trying to find a way to connect with us by speaking our language. But I think where there's a lot of not great history behind this piece is because it felt unnecessary for him to have to like take our creation story and rewrite it. It's as though the creation story can't just stand alone, right? That it has to be molded to the Christian nativity story. Yes, to the Eurocentrism mindset. Like it really is a thing where you have to open your mind to understand that there are different ways of knowing. At the same time, Genevieve also acknowledges that this carol has done something extraordinary for her people. It helped preserve an otherwise lost language. The Wendat language basically almost died out for a little while. And I say that because there just was a period of time where it simply wasn't being taught. And there was a period of time where there just weren't resources for us to be able to teach other people in our nation that. So to have a translation from someone who was there and very, very good at taking notes, very good at essentially like anthropology, that's what he was doing. I mean, he did. He he does have like a lot of documents that I have read over the years in my studies and journal entries. So those things, I'm not going to say that it's bad because I, I cherish those little windows into the past. By the end of the 19th century, the Wendat language had died out. The research reveals that there were almost no fluent speakers left. Since the 1970s, some efforts have been made to revive the language. And for this reason, Brabuff's carol composed and sung in Wendat, remains a key to unlocking the language today.
honestly, I have a lot of respect for, for Brebo for doing that because, again, he's given us this translation to work from. It's yet another piece of our culture that we can take back. And I, honestly, if you're talking to John Steckley, he's going to be able to help you with that. He's very knowledgeable. He's written, I've read many of his books on the language, and he's also really familiar. And that's exactly what we did. But I'm, I'm a combination sociologist, anthropologist, linguist, historian. We called up John Steckley, one of the foremost experts on the Wendat language. And when I retired, I worked for five years as the tribal linguist for the Wyandot of Oklahoma. John isn't indigenous. His ancestors were Mennonites who settled in Canada. But his fascination with Wendat began over 45 years ago when he was taking a class called Language and Culture. To get some help with his assignment, John went down to the Indian Friendship Center. And found an elder who was teaching another language, Anishinaabe. And I not only learned about the language, but I learned his passion for the language and how he had lost it in residential school and had gone back to live with his grandmother. But he inspired me. And then when I found out that the Wendat language had these all these beautiful texts written in and about it, but no one was speaking it. I thought, this is my mission, right? This is something I can do um, that maybe nobody else will do. Now, let's get back to the Huron Carol. Well, the very fact that he created the Huron Carol shows that he understood that song is so many things to the people, you know. The word for song appears as orenda. Now, orenda can mean prayer, it can mean dance, it can mean song. It's a spiritual expression. And he knew that. He knew that was a good idea, that song was a way to get them engaged in the story. That just telling him this story would not be enough. But singing the story and having them sing the story is really important. So in your assessment, how do you think that Rebuff did as a linguist or cultural translator in this carol? You can see his knowledge of the culture in, in a number of different things. He used, there's a verb to be a spirit, aki. And he spoke of angels as ayoki, which means they're spirits. And then he said, you know, they live in the sky. But he also used it in the negative sense when he was talking about the devil. He was okay and said, well, you know, he is trying to fool us. He's trying to do horrible things to us, right? So he was using that spirit concept. According to John, our martyr saint took great care to preserve images that would not only be instantly familiar to the Wendat, he appears to have also respected the traditions and structures of their world. And when he talked about the three wise men, he was essentially using a term that meant they are elders. He didn't try to make up something, you know, like, I mean, you can say, you know, they're intelligent, they're smart, but what he said, it means they are great in matters, they are great in affairs, you know, uh, which means they're wise. Now, if we were all singing the Huron Carol in the original Wendat tongue that Brabaf so carefully preserved, 
you'd have a real celebration of both Christian and Wendat spirituality. But the carol that most Canadians sing is in English, and it bears a very little resemblance to the original. The story of this song, well, it's like a game of telephone gone very wrong. After being passed down orally among the Wendat for generations, it was translated in the 18th century to French by Etienne de Villeneuve, one of the last surviving Jesuit missionaries to the Wendat Huron people. This translation is supposedly then improved upon by Wendat chief Paul Picard, who also published a French translation of the carol in 1899. He used a non-Wendat vocabulary. I think that's sort of generally what I've said in the past and which I believe is true. And then, almost 30 years later, in 1926, it's translated to English by Jesse Edgar Middleton. Jesse Middleton was a, a songwriter and composer and a poet. Good at all those things. Like, you know, he was an a important figure in Canadian music at the time. Um, and so this was a natural thing for him to do. Basically, he just took the Christmas story and wrote it into English. How is that different from what Rebuff did? Well, among other things, he makes reference to, quote, Gitche Manitou, which is an Anishinaabe term meaning Great Spirit. So it's not even a Wendat term for Great Spirit or God. And, you know, it was in the moon of wintertime. Wintertime doesn't have a moon. Every oh. month has a moon. Yeah. <laughs> if he'd known anything about the culture, <laughs> he would know every moon has a name or sometimes two names. But there's no moon of wintertime. It's this English version, sometimes called Twas in the Moon of Wintertime, that is sung most often today. And as you've probably gathered, Middleton transposed some words and concepts that would be completely foreign to the Wendat people. But exactly how bad is it? To answer that, I asked Genevieve and John to review Middleton's lyrics, verse by verse. Twas in the moon of was in the moon of winter time when all the birds had fled that mighty Gichi Manitou sent angel choirs instead. Before their light, the stars grew dim and wandering hunters heard the hymn, Jesus, your king is born and Jesus is born in excelsis gloria. It's not Wendat, so <laughs> unfortunately. I mean, it's. I think they're trying to use some Algonquian type of verbiage, but it's, it's not really Wendat, which... Maybe that's the start of where the issues are. There's actually, I don't think, any reference to singing in the original. <laughs> no, there isn't. So that tells you something right there, you know. Within a lodge of broken bark, the tender babe was found. A ragged robe of rabbit skin enwrapped his beauty round. I think they're referring to the longhouses there. <laughs> yeah, a lodge of broken bark. Well, he seems to be talking about a wigwam, which is not what they had. They had longhouses. 
And these were very sturdy Elmwark longhouses. You know, they maintained the longhouses very well. You know, it just for me, it creates an image of uh, an old wigwam that hadn't been taken care of. What about the rabbit skin? Would they have used rabbit? Yeah, they they used rabbit, but knowing the culture, it would be more likely raccoon. Raccoon was a very precious fur to them. But as the hunter braves drew nigh, the angel song rang loud and high. Jesus, your king is born. Jesus is born in excelsis gloria. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say, honestly, because to me it just sounds like they're just trying to reach an audience here. And I would be willing to bet that that's not remotely close to what the original one said. They didn't have kings. (laughs) (laughs) And you see, here's the difference. Brebeuf wrote about elders being the ones. Right? Mm. Middleton wrote about kings. There's yeah. a huge difference there. The earliest moon of winter time is not so round and fair, as was the ring of glory on the helpless infant there. The chiefs from far before him knelt with gifts of fox and beaver pelt. Jesus, your king, is born. Jesus is born in excelsis gloria. Well, I mean, you know, fox and beaver pelt, good. That's appropriate, because that's like our our staple in our uh, society. O children of the forest free, O sons of Manitou, the holy child of earth and heaven is born today for you. Come kneel before the radiant boy who brings you beauty, peace, and joy. Jesus, your king, is born. Jesus is born in excelsis gloria. But again, reference to a king. Mm-hmm. Brebeuf knew enough not to, not to try that. The word for king, it's interesting in the stories of the Wyandotte, there's a, a term for someone, this kind of rich and powerful guy that always gets fooled by the Wyandotte. Like he's, he's mm-hmm. always, you know, if he's in the story, someone's going to make him look like an idiot. Right. And the name that was used was the name that, that the Mohawk and they used for the King of England. Oh. So a king is someone you mock, right? So what did Brebeuf use in the original, in this line, Jesus, your king is born? What word would he have chosen? Well, he had a word for Jesus being born. Jesus Ahatonia. Ahatonia is he has just made. Oh, that's beautiful. So as we study the history of many of these carols, we find that they are written down, either the text or the tune, and then picked up by someone else a few centuries later. And it's not uncommon for so many songs to be the aggregation of creativity over the centuries. And so in some ways, the Huron Carol matches that. Um, But in other ways, it seems to have really missed something essential about the original that Brebeuf did. What do you think about that? It very much lost that sense, that genuine Wendat sense of what Brebeuf captured. In your mind, what is the original message or spirit of Brebeuf's carol? Well, I think the, the message of it 
was one that linked the people to the story. There were spirits like they knew of spirits, a bad spirit and a good spirit. They understood that. And the sense of spirits in the sky, they understood that. So there isn't really anything in it, I would say, that does not fit comfortably in the culture of the time. To help us appreciate Brabuff's Carol, and to put an end to the disastrous game of telephone, I asked John to share his own translation with us. All right, I got it here. Have courage, you who are human. Jesus, he is born. Behold the spirit who had us as prisoners, as domestic animals. It's the same word for both. Has fled. Do not listen to it, as it corrupts our minds. In other words, the spirits of our thoughts. They are spirits coming with a message for us, the sky people. They are coming to say, be on top of life. That's a term that means rejoice, right? Mary has just given birth. Come on, rejoice. Three have left for such a place. They are elders. A star that has just risen appeared over the horizon, leading them there. He will seize the path, lead the way, a star that leads them there. As they arrived there where he was born, Jesus, the star was at the point of stopping. He was not far past it. Having found someone for them, he says, come here. Behold, they have arrived there and have seen Jesus. They praised the name many times, saying, Hooray, he is good in nature. They greeted him with respect, literally translated, oiled his scalp many times. We will give him praise, honor for his name. We will place his name. Placing a name means honoring a name. Let us show reverence, respect for him as he comes to be compassionate with us. It is providential that you love us and think, wish, I should make them part of my family. So it ends with an adoption, which was very, very Wendat. When people, you know, they adopted people into their culture, even traditional enemies, they adopted into their culture. So the idea of adopting Jesus is never mentioned again. But of course, they would adopt him, right? Because he is a good person. They would adopt him. At no point is he pushing European culture. He is saying, here is something we have that is similar, that has parts in it that you have in your culture. He's not telling them, to change, he's telling them to adopt Jesus because elders say he's a good person. After the break, we'll hear how Genevieve would interpret and perform the Huron Carol today. Mm-hmm. 
so this one I feel like it's a really beautiful melody and um, as I work on this arrangement for you guys to share in this podcast this week I will incorporate my water drum in it I will also incorporate my rattle in it I will also incorporate those elements because it's it's bringing this piece back to the roots where it started, where it initially came from. And I think it's really important to have that representation in the music. Yeah. As a musician, how would you describe the melody, especially for those of us who have no musical background? Yeah. I mean, it's very linear. It's very scale-like. It's very much a hymn. Like, it sounds like a hymn. when when I mean that, I just mean like it's, it's simple. It's a simple melody, and it's something that many people can sing. And honestly, with the Wendat language being so complex, it's kind of nice having an easy melody because the words are literally just so difficult to speak. So it kind of makes it easier in that regard to sing the actual words in that language. But I think it's a really beautiful melody. I think it's very almost haunting. All right, I'm going to just check real quick. Make sure it's not too loud. To turn down. Okay, I'm going to start out. I'm going to play a little bit of the melody for the Huron Carol. One word that comes to mind uh, as I'm listening to you play is this is a very sort of plaintive sounding carol. And I'm wondering what helps uh, bring that quality into it. The texture of this piece has a lot of fourths and fifths in the chord, which is very historically related to sacred music and meaning music that is performed or written for the sake of worship. What does it mean to have fourths and fifths in the chord? So a lot of times in religious music, they'll use these intervals because they're technically what we call perfect intervals in music theory, which means that there's they don't have a lot of color in them. And when I say color, I mean something like a third. In sacred music, they use fourths and fifths a lot because it sounds more pure and it it sounds more divine. And in this specific piece, that is actually written that way, where there's a lot of fourths and fifths in the chord. So it has like almost a very heavy, solemn feel to it. Another thing I've read is that when Brebeuf first selected the old French tune for this, he noted that it had a small musical range that would work well for the indigenous flute. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. (laughs) She presents a flute. (laughs) I, I do play the flute, but I can't play it in this key. So because most native flutes are actually carved in a specific key. And I can definitely tell you, like looking at the melody here, the fact that it doesn't have a huge range. 
it's all within like a fifth almost actually. It's pretty much all within the same area, which means it is definitely playable on a flute. So that's actually pretty cool historically to think about. So obviously this is a very complicated carol with an even more complex history, but you really love it, or it sounds like you love performing it. Can you tell us about why, why you love this carol? Yeah, I I think I love it for the same reason that we still continue to sing it every year at Christmas at Midnight Mass going back to the fact that we don't have a lot of songs in our language. We don't have a lot of those resources simply because through the process of colonization, the it was, it was taken from us. We weren't even allowed to sing in our native tongue up till a certain point that honestly was not even that long ago. So to have something like this that is eloquently written in Wendat, from a very long time ago, meaning it's probably more accurate in that regard. It's a gift in a way for the language. Okay. The meaning behind it, that is where it gets kind of complicated. And that's where I have some complexities within. But I will say that my love for my my heritage outweighs that and having another way to connect with my culture, I am grateful for it. And so without further ado, here is a version of the Huron Carol, performed especially for Hark by Geneviève Salomon. Hark is a production of America Media. This episode was written and produced by me and Ricardo Da Silva. Sound engineering on this episode is by Jim Bilodeau. Our theme music is composed by Frank Tucson. Production assistance from our Joseph A. O'Hare Media Fellows, Cristobal Spielman, Jill Rice, and Christopher Parker. Parts of this episode were recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York. Our studio manager is Kevin Jackson. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. Special thanks to Jean-Viev Salomon, Aidan Baker, Cynthia Bena, 
Leif Herstrom, Don Ross, Deborah Busking, Keith Michael Roman, and Brian Thiessen for providing the music for this episode. Hark is made possible by America Media's digital subscribers. Our subscribers can access all of America's content, including an article written on the Huron Carol by my colleague, Father Jim McDermott. It's easy to become a subscriber. Just go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. We'll put a link in the show notes. For America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of Hark. Here's the thing. This piece, the poem is so strong that in both versions, but particularly the dark version, the music is literally clothing the words. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. I mean, who writes the word snow in the same in one line five, five times? times.